Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for being present with us. Thank you for not forsaking us. We love you. We're so grateful for everything you offer, Lord. Lord, we're so thankful that we can even open your word. We're thankful to have what we have. An unbelievable wealth and treasure in your word. To be able to study it and read it and see it and understand it. To have it translated to our own tongue that we might know the words of the Lord. We're so grateful for that, God. And not every people can claim to have that. So we recognize our great wealth in having the sacred word of you. The very words from your mouth. And the ability to hear your voice every time we open the page. Would you speak to us tonight? Would you give me the words? To speak what your spirit would say to us tonight. We love you. God, I thank you for Jacob. I thank you for the story of his life. I think about all these weeks we've been studying Jacob, and I don't know. It's just, I feel like these sermons in Jacob's life have been so powerful, just for me personally even. I hope for everyone else too. But you've been speaking to me, God. Thank you for showing us the power of a changed life of a new name, a new identity. That Jacob the deceiver became Israel, the one who struggles with God and men and overcomes. Would we all be like Jacob? With a new name, a new identity, a new lease on life. Would you fulfill your promises? We know, we know they can be long in coming. Jacob spent 20 years waiting to return to the land. But we know that you fulfill your word. And when you make a promise, you keep it. I pray for each one of us tonight, would you fulfill the promises you've made to us? Like Jacob prayed, and we're going to see tonight, you made a promise to him. I will protect you. I will be with you until you return to the land on which you lie. When Jacob was laying at Bethel and you appeared, you said, I will protect you as you go into this new land and I will be with you until I bring you home. Tonight we get to see home. Thank you. Thank you for your protection. God, what could we say for the God who watches over us? I mean, how many things, countless things, that we cannot even know would have happened without your protecting hand? How many times over has our lives been saved that we could not even see? God, we thank you that you are the providential God. You have not abandoned your creation. You have not walked away from it, but you walk with us. So we pray tonight too. Protect your people around the world. We pray for us, but we also pray for our brothers and sisters in those lands where they are under oppression, true, real, deep suffering where the cost of following Christ can actually be their physical life. 
but we also entrust our souls and their souls knowing that life is in your hands and no man could steal life from you. We trust the promise that when we die, death has no hold on us for those who have committed to Jesus. And instead we go from life to life. Life here on earth to life in your presence to see you face to face. We await the day when you return and bring us all back together, the living and the dead, like that beautiful song spoke about. You, the judge of the living and the dead, will bring all your people into the city, the holy city called by your name. We await that day fervently. We pray for that day to come. We pray like the book of Revelation, Jesus, come quickly. Speed that day, Lord. And as we pray tonight, and as we worshiped you tonight, and as we open your word, be present among us. In Jesus' name I pray. Well, tonight, as always, we're in Genesis. Hope you're not tired of it yet. The last couple weeks, I'll tell you, just maybe it's just me, but these last two weeks I thought have been wonderful. I don't know if I can keep up that pace. But the last two weeks I've thought, I've thought were really, really good uh, on reconciliation and defilement with, of course, this awful story that we read about last week about Dinah, the rape of Dinah. And I remember I called it the defiling of Dinah. When, and the point was that the Lord can answer that. The Lord can answer defilement. It's a category we're not very familiar with in the Western world. But it's a real category. And we'll talk about that a little bit more tonight because Jacob's going to do something um, that echoes what we talked about last week in this next chapter. But tonight, we're going through Genesis chapter 35. So if you have your Bible... Uh, You feel free to open to that, but I'll have the words on the screen for you. Genesis 35, verses 1 to 29. I've titled this week, Return to the Land, because it's this week that the Lord's going to bring Jacob back to the place that he promised he would. It was in Bethel where Jacob laid down and he saw the Lord at the top of a ladder. And the Lord said, I will be with you. I will be your protection as you leave the land and I will be with you until I return you to this place. And remember, when Jacob went across the Jordan, he made that promise, Lord, if you will be with me, if you will stand with me, if you will protect me, you will be my God. My personal God, I will commit my life to you. And last, it was two weeks ago now, we saw him come back across the Jordan And what did he do? He reflected on that prayer. He said, Lord, how could I even begin to express your faithfulness? Because when I left, I left with only my staff. And I return now and I am two camps. He is overflown with blessing. I said overflown. Overflowing with blessing. That's funny. He's, over, he's overflowing with blessing. The Lord has blessed him richly and Jacob comes back across the Jordan. 
a different man, changed by his experience with Laban. And we know that's true. Why? Because he wrestles with God and what? God gives him a new identity. No longer will you be Jacob, the deceiver, but now you are Yisrael, the one who struggles with God and men and overcomes. And we were excited about getting back into the land. He goes to Shechem. And and of course, our excitement is quickly turned to horror because what happens immediately? Dinah is taken by the Canaanites and she is raped. And we talked about the defiling of that and Dinah's experience of defiling. But not only is Dinah defiled, but Jacob and his family and the land is defiled because of his son's reckless, horrific actions in return. They murder an entire village of Canaanites and then take all of their children and women and all of their possessions for themselves. They take them as slaves and bring back all the plunder. And of course, what's Jacob say? This is going to be pertinent to this week. He says, you've made me a stink in the nostrils of these people. You have made me odious among them. And they will not hesitate to to kill me, to destroy all my household. And we're left there. And here we are at chapter 35. So chapter 35 opens up in this way. And chapter 35 is unique because it seems like a bunch of disparate little stories that are all disconnected and they're all just kind of shoved into the chapter. It's like the, the grab bag chapter of the stuff left of Jacob's life. But if you understand what's going on, and and we've seen this, one of the things Genesis is concerned with, not only is just family, which we know, right? That's key to what Genesis is, but it's showing that that history itself has a pattern to it. It has a, a repetitious cycle. And all of a sudden, these people were looking at Jacob and Abraham and Isaac, and eventually we'll get to Joseph in the next few weeks. They're having similar life experiences. And this chapter is going to show how Jacob reflects the life of his grandfather. The experiences of Abraham are the experiences of Jacob. And where they differ, where they have slight adjustments, that's, there's something there, there's something to be gleaned from that, there's something to be seen in the fact that there's some little change here or there that helps us understand it, helps us interpret the passage. So chapter 35 opens in this way, with God speaking to Jacob again. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God, the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Now, at first glance, you read this, and if you read it as a disconnected story, like we often do, we just read a chapter at a time. If you're just reading chapter 35 out of the blue, it's not going to make much sense to you. Because what's going on here is God is testing Jacob. What moment does this reflect in the life of Abraham? This moment actually reflects the Akedah, the test of Abraham to bind and sacrifice Isaac. This is Jacob's test. Now, we don't understand that when we read chapter 35 disconnected from 34. Because what has Jacob just said in 34? What does he think is about to happen? He thinks he's about to be destroyed. The last thing he has said is, 
You, my sons, have made me odious among this people, and they're going to band together and kill us. Not just me. They're going to kill all of us. They're going to destroy me and all my household. What's Jacob's posture? He's afraid. He's afraid of being in the land. Because his sons have committed this terrible atrocity. And he's worried that the Canaanites are all going to band together and destroy them. And in the midst of that fear, God asks him to do something. What's he asking him? To go move in the land. Go to where I tell you. Go to Bethel. You think Jacob feels safe to do that? Absolutely not. His fear is that the Canaanites now, having heard of what happened in Shechem, will kill him and his whole household. And with no stable position, if you're moving about, think about how vulnerable you are with the cities, uh, the villages of Canaanites all around you. And you're going to move in the land, try to go somewhere else? I mean, this is the only place you've wiped the people out. Everywhere else still has inhabitants. And they're all probably ready to get vengeance on you, the same way that Simeon and Levi were ready to avenge Dinah. And then God tells him, go to Bethel. But what does Jacob do? What's his response? Is he like Abraham? Has he been changed? Verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments and let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they all gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. Now what is the language of what Jacob's doing make you think of in light of what we talked about last week? Remember we used the language of cleansing, of purification. What's Jacob trying to do? He's trying to cleanse the defilement among them. Now, just like we talked about last week, this is not innocence and guilt. He's not thinking about what sins they've committed and needing to be forgiven. That's not what he's focused on. What he's focused on is being purified from it. They are defiled from what Levi and Simeon did. And they need to be purified. What is the way to be purified? Well, it's to put away the idols among you. Commit yourself, devote yourself to God. Purify yourselves, wash, be cleansed, and put on new clothes. Why? Well, humans are symbolic creatures, aren't we? We do things metaphorically. We do things to represent other realities. And what they're representing is new purity. What's interesting, one of the commentators I read this week that I thought was so profound too, is this. In some sense, the purification. Uh, where did they get all these foreign gods? Weren't they all committed to, to Yahweh, the God of Israel? Jacob's God? 
Well, it's possible that some of his, you know, descendants or people, slaves, they all could have had them. What's the other, what's the other possibility? This could be plunder from Shechem. So when Jacob's saying, put away the foreign gods and take the rings out of your ears, the gold rings, which also could have been plunder, he's saying, put away the evil of your deeds. The thing you just did that was so heinous, all the plunder of which you gathered from these people that you murdered, put it away from you. Take it out of our space. We'll bury it under the oak. Get it away from us and purify yourselves and devote yourself to our God. And let's go. Let's obey. Jacob's ready. Jacob is not swayed by his fear. He's not swayed by what's about to happen. He's ready for the test. And so they did it. They gave him the foreign gods and the rings and they they put them away from them. They were purified. And what's God's response? It's one of protection. Despite their evil, despite what Levi and Simeon just did, despite the plundering of the sons of Jacob, God responds still with their, he responds to their purification, but he also upholds his promise to protect them regardless of their evil. And so when they journeyed, it says there was a great terror. Actually, the word there is a divine terror. There was a divine terror upon the cities which were around them. And they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Well, I think we can in part maybe wonder if part of the reason they're afraid is because they just realized two of them killed an entire village of people. There's a human and a divine reality combining here. They saw, they heard about what happened. And yet, what is this at its root? What is it at its core? It's a divine terror. It's the work of the Lord protecting them. That the people around the Canaanites are afraid of the Israelites. And that divine terror protects them from pursuit. Protects them from what evil the Canaanites might want to do to them. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel. That was the name prior to it being renamed by Jacob, Bethel. Which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him, and he built an altar there, and he called the place El Bethel, the God of the house of God. Because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. He's been brought back. God fulfilled the promise. The land on which Jacob lay when God made the promise, I will bring you back here. When Jacob returns home, what's his first thought? I gotta worship the God. I've gotta worship the God who brought me back. That's my first thought. My first first thing I need to do is worship this God. So he pours oil and he builds an altar and he worships the Lord. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the oak. It was named Alon Bachut, which is the oak of weeping. Now this is interesting because, again, this is 
totally out of the blue. This is like, okay, this is a big shift here. We're talking about God and what God and Jacob are doing. Now, all of a sudden, Deborah's dying. And we've never heard of Deborah before, by the way. This is the first time we hear this name of this woman. And she's apparently Rebecca's nursemaid, which caught me off guard also when I was reading the passage this week. Because I kept thinking it was Rachel's nursemaid. It's not. It's Rebecca's nursemaid. So this might be a pseudo-mother figure to, to Jacob, right? This is his nursemaid for him when he was a boy. This is Rebecca's nursemaid. And so... Whatever this stands in place of, what's odd is this stands in the place of, of the matriarch dying. Because one odd thing we never see in Genesis is the death of Rebecca. Now we have to assume that if there's an announcement of Rebecca's uh, nurse dying, no announcement of Rebecca dying, which is, again, very odd, we must assume that Rebecca's dead. And by the end of the book, we know that because we know she's been buried with Isaac. But there's no announcement of it in the book. This seems to be standing in the place of that. Maybe the tradition was lost and they never really knew what happened to Rebecca. Who knows? But it's never recorded. We know by the end of the book that she's dead because she's in the cave at Machpelah. Jacob says she is with Isaac. But at this moment, this mother figure, this matriarch figure dies. And that's significant, just like it was in the life of of Isaac when his mother died, remember? When Isaac's mother, Sarah, died and was buried in the cave at Machpelah that Abraham bought. That's chapter 23. And so here you have this kind of matriarchal figure die. It's following these same patterns. And so she was buried there in Bethel under what they called the Oak of Weeping. And in Bethel, God appeared to Jacob again. When he came from Paddan Aram and he blessed him. Now what's God going to do? God's going to reaffirm the promises. He's going to reaffirm what he's promised to Jacob. And what his father blessed him with when he left for Paddan Aram. When he left to meet Laban. Isaac blessed him with the promises. Now the Lord is going to reaffirm those promises that they will come to pass. He's even going to add to them, which is significant. But first he wants to remind him of who he is. So God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. Now remember, this is so significant. His life has been defined by deception. His own deception. God's reminding him, no, you're not that person anymore. You may still be called Jacob. You may still be referred to by that name. But that's not who you are. Who you are is the one who struggles with God. Right? Israel. That's who you are. You're a new creation. You're a new man. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. What promise is that? That's the creation promise. Jacob, you're going to be fruitful and multiply. Exactly what I intended for humanity to be, you're going to do. A nation 
and a company of nations shall come from you. And, here's the new part, kings shall come forth from you. Jacob has promised a kingly line. And that's significant because it's an addition to the promises. He's receiving the promises of his grandfather and his father before him. The promise of a land, the promise of a seed, descendants, and the promise of a blessing. But he's also receiving something new. Kings shall come forth from you. That's going to be very significant to the rest of the Old Testament, isn't it? And of course, when we get to the New Testament, even more important. The promises that lead down from the line of Jacob through, we know, as we've studied the history, through Judah. And from Judah down to the great king, David. And from David to Messiah, right? That's this promise. The significant kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. And then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. You see why Jacob has so much reverence for this place, called it Bethel, the house of God. Why? Three times now God has appeared to him there. Can you imagine that? I mean, a vision of God three times in one place. I'd never leave that place. Right? If you just want to stay there and soak it up forever. Jacob reveres this place. This is sacred space. This is holy space. But Jacob's on a journey. And you may not realize it yet, But we're going to see it as time goes on. Jacob is moving. And again, we're not very good in the West when it comes to Israelite geography. And so we don't always notice things like this. But Jacob is on a path. He's gone from Shechem to Bethel. He's going to move on from there. Where is he heading? He's going south. He's going south. He came from Padan Aram, which is up in the southeast, way beyond the, the Jordan River. He's headed southwest, comes back into the land across the river, goes to Shechem, and he heads south from Shechem to Bethel. We're going to see where he goes next. But first, Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it, and he also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. This is not a new name. He's already named it this, but he's reaffirming it. This place really is the house of God. Three times I've seen him. This is the house of God. Okay. Then they journeyed from Bethel. And when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and she suffered severe labor. When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. So now we're faced with the tragic irony of the prayer Rachel made all the way back in in the birth of the sons, remember? After all that struggle, after all that fighting with her sister, that jockeying back and forth, who's going to come out on top? Rachel finally gets one. The Lord opens her womb and she has a son and names him Yosef, Joseph. Why? 
Joseph means he added. He added. He added to me a son. And what's she say? May the Lord add another to me. What's the irony of that prayer? Well, it's this. She's in labor and it's painful, it's severe. And the midwife, when the child is born, says, hey, your prayer's been answered, you have another son. But it came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Benoni. But his father called him Benyami. Benoni means son of my sorrow. She named him after her grief at death. Ben-Oni. But Jacob, her father, his father, what did he call him? Ben-Yamin, son of my right hand. If you know anything about that symbolism, the right hand, the place of the right hand, what's that? That's the place of honor. It's the place of favor. When it speaks of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation, where does he sit? at the right hand of the throne. He's in the, the, the spot of authority, the spot of honor next to, to God Almighty. Jacob calls him that. She called him the son of my sorrow. What's Jacob called? He's, he's my favored son, the one who sits at my right hand. Because of course, Rachel was his favorite wife, right? The one he loved. What's interesting Ephrath, we haven't learned this yet, but you'll hear it in this next line. So Rachel died and was buried on their way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem, Bethlehem, the house of bread. Familiar place to us, of course, especially because of the New Testament. What's significant about this, you may not know this, Benjamin is the only one, think about this, the only child who's born in the land, the land of promise. Every other child is born to him when he's in Padnaram. All the children that he has, is the 12 tribes of Israel, are all born outside of the land of promise. But when they come back into the land and on the way to Bethlehem, Benjamin is born. He's born in the land. Bethlehem is in the territory of Benjamin. Benjamin's birthright by being born in the land is to receive the land in which he was born. And the Lord offers him territory right where he was born, Bethlehem. You may not know this in the New Testament times. That is, we always think of it just as Judah, but that's actually the territory of Benjamin, which was covered on all sides, surrounded on all sides by the territory of Judah. But the area just north of Jerusalem, all that area, that's the, that's the territory of the tribe of Benjamin. And here Bethlehem is in Benjamin, where Jesus, of course, is born. So Jacob set up a pillar over her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. So Israel, journeying on, and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. Okay, he's still going south. He's gone to Bethlehem from Bethel. And he's still heading south. Again, this is a. This seems like a very random thing. It's a very odd thing, but it's just thrown out here. It came about while Israel was dwelling in that land that Reuben went and lay, he slept with, he had sex with, his father's concubine, Bilhah. And Israel heard of it. 
That's all it has to say about that incident. What a random little aside. What we should note is how dishonoring that is to Jacob. In fact, when you get on into the law in Leviticus, and I think Deuteronomy repeats it, this would be a death penalty type of sin to lay with your father's concubine. And what's the most famous instance of someone laying with their father's concubine? Well, it's the ultimate act of claiming authority from someone's father. It's Absalom who goes and sleeps with David's concubines to show, I'm king here. You're not any longer, David. I'm king. And he goes into his father's concubines to shame his father. So what Reuben is doing here is extremely shameful. And it's hard to know what Reuben's reasoning is. You know, we inherently, because of our own culture, we inherently assume it's some kind of lustful, depraved, kind of fetishistic type thing. I, I don't know if that's the case. I guess it's possible. But also you have to remember, Reuben's the oldest. And he's a son of... Leah. What he could be trying to do is pay his father back for the way that he felt his, his father mistreated Dinah. Didn't care for her honor. Didn't care for the fact that Dinah... Jacob seems to do nothing in response to Dinah's rape. It's possible Reuben could be shaming his father intentionally. It's also possible, as a son of Leah, that now that Rachel's dead... He wants to make sure Bilhah doesn't become the favored wife Rachel's made. No, it should inherently, it should go to Leah. That would be what's right in Reuben's mind. She should be the favored, my mother should be the favored wife. And one way to prevent that, of course, is to, to lay claim, obviously this is a sexual claim, to the concubine. But whatever it's going on, we're not going to hear about it until the end of the book. This will come back up. This story will return. And it's significant. These little pieces, these little bites that are so weird and like, well, that's kind of strange, just inserted there. They're meant to explain the reality of what we're going to find in Exodus and the post-Exodus period when they return to the land. Because as I told you from the very beginning of the series, Genesis is written in light of Exodus. When these things are written down, now they didn't happen after Exodus, I'm not saying that. Obviously these events happened prior. But the writing down of them is clearly a reflection on the events of Exodus and the God who freed them from slavery. And one of the things that needs to be explained is how the tribes played out the way they did. How did, how did certain tribes become so prominent how did certain tribes become so expansive and so massive? One of them, in the, what eventually would become the northern kingdom, Ephraim, is going to become the greatest tribe of the northern kingdom. And so they're going to have to explain that, and they will later on in the Joseph story. But here we have to understand, well, how did Judah get so big? How does Judah become a nation unto itself, the southern kingdom of Judah? Well, there's three people that need to get out of the way for Judah be, to be given the firstborn right. And now we've seen all three stories that are going to tell us how Judah gets the firstborn right. Who are the three before Judah? The firstborn is Reuben, the secondborn is Simeon, and the thirdborn is Levi. 
Reuben sleeps with his father's concubine, nixed from the firstborn right. Simeon and Levi, they murder all the city of Shechem, nixed from the firstborn right. Who's next in line? Judah. Judah receives the right of the firstborn, the right of rule. And it's going to come up again when Jacob blesses his sons. He's going to say, Reuben, firstborn, the, the son of my strength. He's, he will be cursed for what he did for laying with my concubine. And Simeon and Levi, these strong men, they're violent men. May the Lord bring it down on their heads. And then Judah. Judah, may the scepter never depart from him. See, these promises of kings go straight to Judah. Because Reuben, Simeon, and Levi are disqualified. So one of the things Genesis is trying to do is understand the makeup of the nation that is first reading these things after Exodus. They're trying to understand who they are. And to understand who they are, they have to understand the things that happened before. If you know anything about history, man, isn't that the truth? We all have something to learn about who we are because of what came before. And the Israelites are trying to understand how they became the nation that they are. These are the stories in Genesis that explain how they became what they are. So it's really significant to them. It may seem like an aside to us, but to them it explains how Judah became the tribe of, of all the tribes, the leader of them. Now there were 12 sons of Jacob. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, then Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, and the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. Notice how this lineage is laid out. Like I've told you, we're coming to the very end of Jacob's, not his life, but the end of the story focused on him. And it's about to change. We're about to go into the story of Joseph. So as we wrap these things up, the narrator, the, the author of Genesis, wants to remind us of something. And what does he want to remind us of? Well, we see it in this pseudo-genealogy, this small little piece. How are they organized? Are they organized chronologically? Are they organized by birth order? No, they're organized by mother. By mother. Because the thing the author wants to remind us of is the rivalry. Because the rivalry is what makes sense of the Joseph story. Without knowing that the kids are at war, based on their mother, you can't understand how they interact. And see, now Leah, her sons, they're against Rachel's, or maid's sons, against Bilhah's sons, right? There's, there's already that brewing because Reuben slept with their mother. And of course, Leah and Rachel's sons were already at loggerheads, right? Because they hated each other because their mothers hated each other. The drama is, is being reminded to us, hey, 
By the way, don't forget, here's their position in relation to each other. They're all from different moms. And these ones go with this mother, and these ones go with this mother. And then all of a sudden, maybe it makes a little more sense why they might try to sell one of us off into slavery. Or kill one of us, or put us in a pit, or any of the other horrible things we could do amongst brothers. Now, to be fair, even in Cain and Abel's case, they already had enough hatred, and they were full brothers. But this wants to remind us of what's going on. That there is... It may not be justified, but there is a reason that these brothers are at war. And it's a long-standing family issue. Jacob's heading south, remember that. Now, who's south? His father. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiriath Arba, Arba, that is Hebron where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now remember, Abraham lived his life in Hebron, because what's in Hebron? Well, the cave at Machpelah, his burial land, the land that he bought, is in Hebron. And Isaac, he was actually living even further south. He was living in Beersheba. But Isaac has moved north, and now he's living in Hebron, where his father lived before him, probably in their land, their ancestral land. And this whole time we see that Jacob is doing something, What's he doing? He's going back to his dad. He went to Shechem, and then went to Bethel where God told him to go and continued on through Bethlehem where he buried his wife, his favored wife. And then went down to Eder and had this horrible thing happen with his, his firstborn, and now he's finally made it to Hebron. Now he can see his dad one last time. And again, notice who's missing. Rebecca, she's not there because she's already dead. We already talked about the tragedy of that. Rebecca, so sure that she'd see her son again, sent him away, and 20 years passed, and she never got to see her favored son again, because she probably died while he was in, in the, the camp of Laban. But Jacob makes it back, and it says, Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. An old man of ripe age and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now I made a mistake. Excuse me. I made a mistake a couple weeks ago. Because I think I said that Jacob and Esau never see each other again after the reconciliation in the scripture. They do. They see each other one more time. It's right here. The reconciliation holds for them to bury their dad together. Just like Ishmael and Isaac did. Ishmael and Isaac were able to put aside what they had and bury Abraham together. And so the same is true about Isaac. Jacob and Esau, the reconciliation that's so, so beautiful in chapter 33. That's a true reconciliation because they're able to come together and bury their dad. But from this moment on, we don't know if Jacob and Esau ever see each other again. But there's something significant in this movement we've seen. Jacob continues to move south and south and south and south. And what's south of Israel? Egypt. He's moving closer and closer to the Exodus. 
And of course, any good Jew reading this knows if you're heading south, you're getting closer to where we just spent 400 years in slavery. And of course, what's the story of Joseph? How the people of Israel got into Egypt. How did they get there? Joseph is going to answer those questions. But Jacob is left here. This is where his story, not his life, but his story, this, this cycle we focused on for him, it's going to stop here in Hebron. It ends here. Next week, we see Esau's genealogy, like we've seen over and over again. Remember what, what happens in the book of Genesis. We see the, the genealogy of the non-elect line first, and then the elect line. So it goes like this. Oh, we see the genealogy of Ishmael, and then we see the genealogy of Isaac, and then we hear the stories about Jacob. And now next week, we're going to hear the genealogy of Esau, the non-elect line, and then we're going to focus in on the stories of, about Jacob. What is his family history? And of course, those stories are about his sons, and particularly Joseph. We're coming to the end here. The end of Jacob is right here is him burying his father, which is just like the last cycle. With Isaac burying his father. These men run in in similar experiences. I think we do too, more than we recognize, honestly. If, If you have time to sit and reflect on, you recognize that. We do follow the patterns of those who came before us. We do follow the realities. Our sin patterns tend to look like our parents. Our, you know, the, the good things about us, they tend to reflect the good in our parents. I mean, that's just the reality of family. Those things pass. We just learn them, it seems like. And here, Jacob, he's running in the same experiences as his father and his grandfather. And he's going to end in the same place both his father and his grandfather lived here in Hebron. But, but the story of this family, the story of the family at war, is not done. And we're left with that. We're left with, hey, let me just remind you, all these sons come from different moms. Why are we left there? Because the next story we're going to read about is so heinous in terms of brother against brother. The way they treat their brothers. What's the question that we're waiting to be answered? The question is, how did these tribes ever come together to form one nation? <laughs> Look at the way these brothers think about each other, the way they treat each other. How could they ever possibly come together? And form one people. How could 12 tribes with different moms and different... I mean, this could have happened at any point. We have never seen it happen yet. Ishmael, he breaks off. Him and Isaac aren't one people. They're different peoples. Jacob and Esau, they're not one people. They break off. They become different peoples. How did these 12 tribes not become different people? How did they unify? The only way that's possible only way that's possible is God's spirit gonna, it's going to be at work the power of the Joseph story is that somehow God makes it work in the darkest circumstances in some ways 
spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> in some ways, Joseph says the line that epitomizes Genesis and really all of humanity in some sense. Is at the end of the book, Joseph is going to say this. My brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. That's the story of Genesis. Every time humanity's evil rears its head, God somehow can make good flower out of it. That's the power of Genesis. That's the power of the human story. God takes the darkest evils and can make beauty. And that's not to downplay the evil and the pain of it. It's real. It's real evil. And it's real suffering. What Joseph experiences in his life is horrific. It is tragic. It is some ways beyond comprehension to think about what that poor man suffers. I don't detract from that at all. I do not detract from the what you intended for evil. That's so true. There is an evil intention there, and there is evil done. But somehow, evil doesn't have the last word. Jacob comes, or excuse me, Joseph comes out on top. Because why? Because God is for him. But for tonight. We stop here. With Jacob and his family in the south of Israel, waiting the next steps, awaiting what's going to happen. Jacob, he, he's probably lost. He's lost his wife. His favored wife is now dead. He just buried his father. And to compact tragedy upon tragedy, he's about to think that he loses his favorite son. In chapter 37, when we get to the Joseph story. But that's not going to be the last word. I hope as we've studied Jacob, I mean, just as a, a wrap-up on Jacob, I, I hope as we've studied Jacob, over the last, I guess it's probably been two and a half months at this point, maybe three months. I hope as we've studied Jacob, you've come to find a new appreciation for him. I know I did. He's not just the deceiver. All too often we end with Jacob at that place. He's just the same kid that he always was. The one who tricked his brother and st stole a blessing from a blind old father that looked to be on his deathbed. And what kind of person does that? I think we've all done things like that in our own lives. The beauty of Jacob is that we can all relate. We've all done evil that we wish we wouldn't have. The power of the Jacob story is that Jacob changes and he gets a new identity. And maybe that's where you're at tonight. Maybe tonight you need to ask for a new identity, to be reminded of who you are, the character that has changed in you, the new person you've become. 
the new name that you have. As all too often we define ourselves. Maybe this isn't everyone. Maybe it's just me. I all too often define myself by my failures. And not by the new man that Christ has made me. Like Paul says, holy. He calls us saints, which is just the word for holy. Holy brethren. At the beginning of every letter he says that. Saints. The holy ones. You think he doesn't know they're jacked up? Of course he does. He knows they're screwed up people. He even says it to the Galatians and the Corinthians. We all know they were jacked. But Paul knows who they are. Because Christ has made them something else. Christ has made them into new people, into holy saints. That's who we are. We've got to accept it. We've got to accept that identity. And my prayer for you tonight is as you walk through the journey, just like Jacob did, maybe you end up in a foreign land, spiritually or literally. But on the journey that you'll be changed. A new person, new identity. No longer Jacob, but Israel. I pray you'll have the experiences with God that confirm that to you. Just like Jacob wrestling with, with the Lord. I pray that the weakness and pain and suffering you experience, just like Jacob's dislocated hip, the things that stay with you, that even when you walk, you still limp, just like Jacob, his dislocated hip, and never went away. But what was it a reminder of? It was a reminder of the place where God touched him. I pray those things stay with you. They form who you are. I know they have for me. I know those limps. I know those limps have formed me. I pray they do for you too. I'll turn it over to Ty.